0: Peace, we Today on the Altcos Mainstream podcast, we have the third podcast in a special three-part series with some of the titans in the alts world. We're partnering with Kaya, the leading global professional body in alternative investment credentialing programs, for a very special episode that dovetails with the release of their latest report on renewed professionalism and creating client-centered outcomes for the portfolio of the future. We're lucky enough to have Jenny Johnson, the CEO of Franklin Templeton, one of the world's largest asset managers with over 1.5 trillion AUM spread across a number of specialist managers on today's episode of Alco's Mainstream. Jenny is the president and CEO of Franklin Templeton. She joined the firm in 1988 and held leadership roles in all the major divisions of the business before becoming CEO in February 2020. She led the historic $6.5 billion acquisition of Legg Mason in 2020 and has been named to Barron's list of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Jenny has been instrumental in building Franklin Templeton into a firm that serves clients across asset classes and has over 25% of its $1.5 trillion AUM in alternative assets. Jenny spearheaded the $1.75 billion acquisition of Secondary's private equity firm, Lexington Partners, and private credit firm, Alcentra. Jenny has managed to bring the past, present, and future together at Franklin Templeton, balancing being the third generation in the family to lead the business, helping the firm to maintain its culture through numerous acquisitions, while also looking to highly innovative corners of the investment world, like crypto and blockchain, to keep Franklin Templeton ahead of the pack. Jenny and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of the asset management industry, how companies can be considered nation states and what that means for building culture, how to distribute alternatives to all investors in a responsible way, why net of fees is the most important question in the fee question debate, and why now is a great time to be building in the crypto space. Thanks, Jenny, for coming on the Alcos Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Jenny. Welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thanks for coming on. I think we have a number of fascinating topics to talk about here. Everything from what you've built as a business to how you're thinking about things over generations when it comes to innovation and disruption to what you're doing today as a firm. I'd love to start the past, the present, and then we'll get to the future. Starting off, you've had a stellar career Working at and building Franklin Templeton really since the late 80s. I'd love to hear how you describe the evolution of your career. <laughs>
1: Well, my grandfather started Franklin Templeton, and my father and my uncle really grew the business. I am third generation. My brother had been the CEO for 15 years, and I recently, about two and a half years ago, became CEO. I really grew up on the operations and technology side of the business. I'd run a bank that we had at one point and kind of grew up on that side. And then later in my career, took over the investments and distribution. One of the most valuable things that I ever did was running technology in a time of great disruption
0: how has running the ops and tech side informed how you've thought about the future of franklin and how you determine the strategy for the firm
1: well, i think it's a really interesting time right now because of blockchain and how i think it's going to actually completely revolutionize back offices and therefore the products that we can support as a business I just feel incredibly fortunate to understand the nuts and bolts of the business. I jokingly say in asset management, about 8% of people actually manage money and they wonder what the other 92% do. But the 92% are really what kind of drive the innovation around the vehicles that we deliver, as well as being able to inform clients and how these products fit into portfolios.
0: It's a really interesting perspective on things because I think financial services, one could argue that- You don't need to have the best technology to win if you have the best distribution. And it's really about the quality of the product, financial product, and then distribution. Hearing what you're saying, what would your response be to that in terms of how technology can actually make things more efficient, increase margins, and then ultimately create better end experiences for clients when it comes to financial product manufacturing and distribution?
1: I always say at Franklin Templeton, our kind of intellectual capital is our investment capability and that we're agnostic to whatever vehicle we deliver that to the end client. And so it could be a separately managed account. It could be an ETF, a mutual fund, a a collective investment trust, whatever. We're agnostic to that part. What I think is the next evolution, and this is where technology has gotten better and better, think about tokenization and how it will enable because you reduce the frictional cost of a transaction when you can embed, say, covenants in an agreement into the actual token or the title and ownership. So as soon as you have all those things embedded and the frictional cost of a transaction is reduced, you can actually deliver more investment capabilities, more products. And so I think it's important to the future of how we will see product innovation. If you think about why does the New York Stock Exchange close at 4 p.m.? Well, it closed at 4 p.m. because everybody had to catch up on orders and you had batch processing in your systems at night. And I think all of these things, as technology creates efficiencies, we're going to see more product innovation.
0: I think there's a few really interesting things to go to there when you think about how technology and innovation can compress fees. So one is, in your mind, what does this do to fee structures in financial services products?
1: We always jokingly say in in the business, fees are only going one way and that's down. And so you have to constantly innovate on how you deliver your products in order to keep up with the fact that there's fee pressure. The one area where that has not been the case is in the alternative space in the private markets where the top performing firms have been able to gain their fees because they've delivered real outperformance. And it's pretty staggering that the top private equity firms have outperformed the bottom quartile by 20% a year. The top real estate firms have outperformed the bottom quartile by 10% a year. And the top private credit firms have outperformed the bottom by 5% a year. So the top firms are oversubscribed and they just don't have fee pressure. But I think everywhere else in the industry, there's been more pressure.
0: That brings me to the next question, which is if fees will compress in certain areas, but like you say, maybe not all because interquartile spreads and dispersion between top quartile managers and bottom quartile managers matters even more in private markets. But as you think about the topic of fees changing due to technology innovation, how do you think about how a client's portfolio gets constructed. Does that look different? Because if you can compress fees in certain areas, like fund administration, even for private equity funds, venture funds, or crypto funds, then does that change how you think about portfolio construction for that client? Because fees do have to come into the equation.
1: I think fees is one component of the equation, but honestly, it's net of fees return it matters. I actually think that there's a disproportionate focus on fees instead of the net impact of fees. And really, when you're building portfolio construction, you need to be looking at things like diversification, volatility, uncorrelated assets. Those are the things that go into portfolio construction, and you need to be fee aware and be focused on net of fees. And by the way, the same return over a 10 year period is not the same experience for an end client when you add volatility. So part of that equation of net of fees also includes things like volatility in there.
0: It's a great segue into really what Franklin's specialty is, which is you're building a platform of independent specialist managers that you either build and train in-house or acquire like you recently did with Lexington Partners amongst others. How have you thought about constructing Franklin as a firm to do like you say, help clients construct the best possible portfolios with best-in-class investment managers across all these different asset classes?
1: So I'll use the analogy of being a chef and walking into a kitchen. We want to have the best stocked kitchen of ingredients and capabilities. And we can serve as the chef or more often... We are delivering through an expert. So whether it's a sovereign wealth fund or a pension fund on the institutional side or a financial advisor on the wealth side, there's usually an intermediary who is determining what the ultimate participants' desires are. We're now $1.4 trillion in assets under management. We acquired, as you mentioned, Lexington Partners, which is a secondary PE firm. We also have Clarion Partners. They're about an $82 billion real estate manager benefit street partners and El Centro for private credit. We have a venture capital and hedge fund of funds, liquid alts. So about $260 billion in alternatives. We're one of the top 10 alternatives managers, which many people don't think of Franklin Templeton in that way. But it's because we see these trends that we think aren't going away where private assets have become more and more important to portfolios. And we wanted to be able to just meet that trend with capabilities that our clients can pick from as they're constructing their portfolios. And then you ask the question about how do you keep the culture and how do you pick those firms? Culture matters. I always say when you're acquiring an asset manager, the investment banker is going to tell you why it's a good price and why it's a good strategic fit, but they never talk about culture. And the truth is deals live and die on whether the culture fit. So we look at that as the most important. We spend a lot of time with the teams. And then we recognize that what are you buying when you buy an asset manager? You're buying people in their investment process. So leave it alone. Don't destroy the asset, the value of the asset you acquired. So we allow that to be defined by the various investment teams. One team might say, I need to have a trader sitting on my desk. That's really important to investment process. Others will say, I'll use the centralized global trading system because I like a trader to be geographically located with wherever those assets are. That's determined by the CIO and the investment team, the technology that they use. But at the center, we provide additional services like an investment data lake where we think raw sources of data is going to be really important and AI is going to be very important to active managers where they source that. Data is really expensive, so if we can scrub it and make it available and the investment teams can use it as they please, they see that kind of value add that without scale, they wouldn't be able to do on their own.
0: There's a few different places I want to take this because you mentioned culture, which is so important. I also want to get to how you've thought about building and constructing this incredible set of ingredients to make the meal for investors. But first on culture, given that you touched on that, and that's so important to how you think about evaluating asset managers, I think this really ties in with your DNA as a firm. You're a family-run firm, family-owned. You think in generations, you're now third generation and in and of itself is incredibly impressive. If you think about companies, they can feel similar to nation states sometimes, right? And in order to build a great culture, you need to teach history, you need to teach culture in order to develop a sustainable community and culture. Given that you're this family-run firm with tremendous amount of history, and I'm sure stories passed down in your own kitchen tables, how have you thought about transmitting that history and culture one, as a family-run business, and two, as you acquire these other firms where you want them to keep their culture, but also integrate into the Franklin culture?
1: I would say, number one, first of all, we're a public company, but the family owns, I think it's around 43% or family and insiders control that. I think that protects you from activists who might try to break you up and do some of the parts that's not good for a long-term business, but maybe gets immediate bump in the short run. My father always said, take care of the client and the business takes care of itself. And that is just our DNA. Focus on taking care of the client and the business takes care of itself. Secondly, when you have a family name tied to a business, you carry the reputation of the business and the reputation of the family together. So you think about those things. You are a steward of that. And so I think that's been built into our DNA. And then finally, I think one of the risks or difficulties of public company CEOs is there's such a pressure on quarterly earnings. And in times of great technological innovation, you have to invest in things. The efforts we're doing in digital assets probably won't really pay off for five years, but we need to be investing in them today. And so when you think in terms of generations, you're thinking about much longer-term investments, and you're willing to put investment in that even though it's not impacting the short term.
0: That's fascinating, and it brings me to the point of when you think about bringing managers onto your platform or acquiring businesses, how do you evaluate those managers for culture and seeing if they have that same culture DNA that, that you espouse?
1: I think you have to really talk to them about... When we did the Lake Mason deal... You weren't buying one company, we bought eight companies really in there. And we spent a lot more time with the leadership of the sub investment companies, the CIOs and the CEOs of the sub brands to make sure that we were comfortable. And I think that's been key for us in every deal that we've done. There are deals that we thought were great price and a great strategic fit that we passed on because we felt like it wouldn't be a cultural match. And the problem is that kind of friction, they may be great companies, but that kind of friction in your own firm can end up being a cancer throughout the rest of the organization.
0: And as you think about evaluating that fit, once they're under the Franklin umbrella and part of the family, how do you then think about teaching culture and helping them understand the way you work and how you serve clients?
1: You can espouse any mission statement, any value statement. And the question is, how do the leaders behave? What are the decisions that you make? People read those and they take direction from their leaders. If you try to make the right decisions, people realize that that's what's rewarded in a firm. You have to look at what is rewarded in a firm. And we have a value statement that says put clients first, build relationships with our partners, work with integrity, and measure for quality results. And I can tell you, at first I thought it was like, really, do we need to state this? It's so obvious. But when you operate with employees in 35 countries and you have clients in 160 countries, people get away from sort of the mothership. And so you want to be able to say to them, when you're making a decision oh, and you're not sure which way to go, run it against these four values and you'll get clarity around the answer most of the time. Because you can't control everything back at the center. And so- I think that the message has been we operate that way as a firm.
0: You mentioned put clients first, and I want to transition into something you said a bit earlier, which is you think about what the demands of your clients are, the intermediary, whether it's the institution or the wealth channel, and you've focused heavily on alts. How much of that decision to focus on alts is driven by demand from the client's? In their interest in private assets?
1: I think you have to look at the recent trends. And to me, the fact that there are half the number of public equity companies that there were in 2000, that there are probably six times the number of private equity, maybe even more companies than there were in 2000. And um, I don't know, three or four times the number of private equity-backed companies than public companies. From an investable universe, to offer your clients real opportunity, you had to start thinking about private markets. And the same thing goes into credit. Things like Basel III and Dodd-Frank and others change capital requirements in banks. So the good news is our banks are much more secure and we probably give a better situation going into any financial crisis. But they're also preserving their capital for their best clients. So that has created this opportunity to be lending to in the private credit market. So if you're just looking for the ability to make investments, and there are different characteristics of these types of investments, you had to be able to expand into the private markets. We heard institutions say it. They liked it for the dampening of volatility. They liked the illiquidity premium that they get by longer term focus in some of these assets. And so that was clearly the trend on the institutional side, but it's also becoming the trend in the wealth channel. And now it's about thinking of how to deliver responsibly to that channel the fact that these are illiquid assets but you can get a premium now i think we're at a moment in time that's akin to when my grandfather got into the mutual fund business at that time the average investor couldn't invest in the equity markets and there was the excess returns were in the equity markets because they only had the money to do a partial investment of a single stock and so somebody came up with this idea of bringing well-priced a reasonable fees and a diverse portfolio. Well, we're at that same crossing point today where we have to think about how to bring these private assets to the wealth channel.
0: I want to touch on that because that fits in so well with, A, what Kaya's thinking about as they educate professionals and clients on alternative investments about making sure that there's renewed professionalism as we think about alts is featuring in portfolios. So you bring up some really important points, which is, Average investor hasn't traditionally had access to alts. Now they can, but you have to do it responsibly. What does that mean to you?
1: It's interesting. And I often think that alts managers, because they're used to selling to big institutions that say, I know my cash flows, here's what it is, here's what I can absorb in illiquidity. The challenge a financial advisor has is they might have a client with a million dollars who has plenty of cash flow to cover their expenses, and that million dollars could be locked up, or a percentage of it, locked up much more than a client that has $20 million who's blowing through their portfolio and their savings. The advisor has to customize the solution for each portfolio of their client, and that's a lot more complicated. In that, you have to understand the real factor risks in whether it's private equity, private credit, private real estate. One is creating vehicles that have some component of liquidity. We have liquid alts. The problem is you give up some amount of return when you're in a fully daily liquid alts strategy, like a long short fund or something like that. But the industry is rolling out things like interval funds, where you can get a certain amount of liquidity every quarter. I think it really comes down to the financial advisor saying, I am willing to allocate for each client different percentages, depending on my client's needs, to be able to capture this illiquidity premium. And I'm a big fan of 401k plans using managed accounts as being a great way to deliver this. Franklin Templeton ran a model where we allocated 10 to 30 percent in a managed account to private real estate and private credit. We didn't even enter in with private equity. And we used the average returns and it boosted net of fees a retirement account by one to three percent annually. You look at that compounded over a lifetime of savings; it's really significant. In the case of a four hundred and one k, one of the benefits is you have paychecks with flows always going into those funds that enable you to be able to pull money out when people need it, and. For an individual borrower, there's often a lending mechanism for hardships. So I actually think that's just a natural way to do this.
0: It seems like you're matching up the structure of a long-dated vehicle where you can't get liquidity necessarily and which even in public markets, investors sometimes are their own worst enemies by selling too early and it matches up a 401k or an illiquid vehicle effectively matches up well with the illiquid nature of many private assets. So in your mind, is that the true expression of alt goes mainstream where it's embedded in a product that anyone can have, not just the wealthiest individuals or institutions?
1: I think it's probably the easiest one. And it's very hard. And I'll tell you why I think it's very hard to do. But it's the natural one and the one that will have the greatest immediate impact. The reason it's hard to do is there's so much focus in 401k plans on just fees. And that's where this conversation Net of Net Fees, well, guess which alts managers are going to be low fee? It's going to be the ones that are underperforming. And then you would have been better being in the public markets. So we got to get our arms around understanding that you're going to have to pay the higher fees to get the best performing managers in the alt space.
0: That's a really important point when you think about the point of quality and how that relates to distribution. That's a topic I want to touch on because I think that is so important when you think about having products on your platform and then distributing those products. How do you think about what it means to be a high-quality alternatives manager? And then how do you think the, about the distribution of that product or products and the responsibility that you have in accordance with what you were saying?
1: First of all, what is the, the biggest characteristic of uh, alts manager or private manager? It's that the assets can be long-dated and illiquid. Your client is giving up liquidity So what are you giving them back for that? And oh, by the way, they're probably charging more. So I'd say the other thing is they're probably going to pay more. So what are you giving them back? And that's where it becomes very important. And a real effective private equity manager is probably restructuring and is investing in the business to ensure when they do an exit, that coming out with a good multiple of the money. So in the short run... The business is probably not as profitable, but that's okay because it's held privately and in the long run at the exit, they've done a better job. On the other hand, if they're just buying the business and adding leverage, that's probably not going to perform so well in times like this. That's where real skill comes in private credit managers really having good underwriting, really knowing that you have a good sponsor network and non-sponsor network is as important as your credit underwriting. Those are all skills that you bring to be able to have the fact that you need to return something for your client giving up liquidity. And then I think that, again, it's been volatility and uncorrelated have been the expectations in these categories. I used to I looked askance at the idea that private equity didn't mark down as quickly as public assets. But actually, if you think about it, if you have a private portfolio and a public portfolio and there's times like this where the market drops and you need to meet obligations, you oversell your public markets, and so you probably do sell them at a distressed price and that it's reasonable that your private markets are not marked down. And we see that. We see that private markets tend to lag by about six months and only get marked down by half of what a public market would have dropped at the bottom.
0: It's an interesting point and one to think about as we're seeing tons of fintech innovation with all these platforms that are now distributing financial services products in the alt space. On that point, you mentioned on one hand, which is, I think is true, that the best managers in the alt space can command the highest fees. And they should, and to your point, net of fees is what matters. How do you reconcile that with the fact that those managers who are generally charging the highest fees are generally the most in-demand managers are often oversubscribed or hard, if not impossible to access. And yet you have these platforms who are trying to provide access to products in the alt space either may not get access to those products, but still want to provide access to alts for many of these end clients, often wealth managers, intermediaries, and end clients, high net worth individuals, retail investors, et cetera. How do you reconcile those two things where best managers are often hard to access? Is it better that many clients then don't have access to alts at all if they're not getting the best managers? Or should they still have access to alts? And how do we ultimately over time solve that problem?
1: I think that Access matters. That's what many wealth managers sell, is that they can get access to those top managers. And by the way, you could be in the first and second quartile and still far outperform net of fees public markets. In at least historically, we'll see how people run through a much choppier time here. But again, that's where longevity matters, where you don't have to make short-term Decisions to protect your quarterly earnings that I think public companies sometimes fall into and that you ensure you're investing for what the right term business is and they have that benefit during these times. I think this is why using the right intermediaries to get access to those is really important. There's no question
0: about that. You've thought about buttressing your firm's alts capabilities by buying various managers with different strategies. You mentioned Alcentra, great private credit firm. Lexington Partners, great secondaries firm. You've done work in the crypto space. You have your own VC fund. How have you thought about the productization of alts within Franklin Templeton?
1: We think it's essential just by the nature of how we think it's a real permanent change where you're just not getting as many companies going public. And what's happening is even though they go public, they're waiting much longer. In 2000, Granted, that was an anomaly, but companies were going public on average after three years. They're now nine to 10 years. So that growth trajectory that used to be captured in IPOs, say in mutual funds, is now being captured in the private market. So figuring out ways to bring that back to the average investor is really important. We have approached it with one, we want to make sure that we've bought or that we're building managers that can perform in the top quartiles. They have to be, be, Lexington Partners, I think is the best secondary PE firm out there. Clarion Partners, have put them up against anybody as in their performances, stands by itself. And our private credit, the same, Alcentra and Benefit Street Partners. So we feel really fortunate that we have acquired really outstanding managers. Venture Capital Group actually grew out of our growth equity team based in Silicon Valley. And it was this recognition that Companies were waiting so long and that we weren't getting those kind of IPO deals. You can invest up to 15% in a mutual fund in private markets, private illiquid assets. We started to do some late stage venture deals within our mutual funds. And I have to tell you that one of the best things that is the deals that we stayed out of because that team is embedded with the public equity team. So when 80% of exits in private equity or to other private equity firms, these guys have the discipline of saying, well, let me show you what the public company equivalents are valued at, and we can't justify. They'd say, we can't justify that pricing, and we stayed out of those deals. What then ended up happening is, as we started to do some of these private market venture deals, late stage, we had clients come to us and say, hey, will you actually run a venture fund? We'd love to invest with you running a venture fund. So then we ended up actually building our own funds. So my point there is I think it's hard to build these things on your own unless you have a particular edge. We had that particular edge because our growth team is based in Silicon Valley. We have those relationships, and so it enabled us to grow it organically, whereas in other areas we found it was better to acquire
0: teams. What made you confident that you had these capabilities internally? versus just trying to outsource or buy a manager in the venture space?
1: I think it's actually really hard to buy alternatives. We've been fortunate in the ones that we've acquired. There's always been a reason why somebody was exiting, because I always say they have more information than you do, so you have to ask why they're selling. But I think in the venture space, we actually found, to be honest, some of our early investors like the fact that we have a different model in that our venture group sits with our public equity team. So as I said, we initially got into it by getting into some of these late stage deals in mutual funds. And then when we started to look at our own track record in the space, we were like, hey, we're actually really good at this. And then when I think that's where some clients recognize that, and we have a very strong balance sheet. I think this also comes from founder mentality. My father always says to me, my uncle will say, I can't tell you the number of times I missed out on a great opportunity because we didn't have the money to do it. And so we are always very conservative. We have about $6 billion on our balance sheet today, but we use a lot of that to seed new types of products. When we started to recognize our capabilities in the venture space, we were willing to seed with our own capital.
0: In some ways, your firm at the balance sheet level is a venture investor yourself. Yeah backing, backing businesses to build internally or figure out if that makes sense. And on that point, you've been very innovative, as you've thought about kind of the, the frontier of asset management, the frontier of alts. What excites you most about the future of alts?
1: Well, I do think that it is a permanent shift right now into more private, both credit I think real estate had kind of been there, but real estate as well, and then private equity. I don't think this is just a function of the massive liquidity that's been created. I think it's accelerated because of this last decade of central bank easing. But I think it's a pretty permanent shift. Delivering investment capabilities and having that full spectrum is really exciting. And then I think the massive opportunity is bringing that And to me, it fires me up. As I said, it's the roots of my grandfather getting in this business to bring mutual funds and equities to the average investor. Now it's thinking about ways to responsibly bring these alternatives to that average investor. And Franklin Templeton, at our roots, is really understanding that investor. I think we've got the great combination of tremendous alternative managers with the distribution the education and the support to that channel we've worked with kaya and helping build out and training our own salespeople on how to think about it we have 200 people out there in the field helping advisors to understand how they should think about it we actually created a new distribution team of specialists who work with our 200 portfolio consultants in the field that can go really deep into each category whether it's private credit private equity, secondary PE, real estate. In that channel, it's much more hand-to-hand combat. We have the Franklin Templeton Academy to help educate. We have the sales force and the scale and the sales force and the relationships in that channel to be able to bring in the education. And often I hear advisors say, not only do I need you to educate me, but I need you to help me educate my client so they're comfortable with it. And that's so different than traditional sales of an alts manager into the institutional channel.
0: What advice would you give a salesperson in the alt space selling to this new crop of investors who now has access to alts?
1: And I think you have to really have an in depth understanding. And that's where I, I've been supportive of Kaya in the space because they're really trying to help educate people and understanding the nuances of investments here versus traditional investments. And I think it's really important because these things have to perform. As described, everybody performs well in a good, strong bull momentum market. It's times like now that there are promises in this space that you got to make sure that the assets are delivering that.
0: How do you think both people who are on the distribution side as well as intermediaries like wealth managers should balance the need for thinking about safety in the sense of it's easier to go with a brand name versus in areas like crypto or venture where this concept of emerging managers has taken hold and now institutions allocate to them. I know fund of funds have a reason for existing in that arena because they provide access in a diversified way and in a way that institutions can actually take down smaller allocations to individual managers. But how should those intermediaries or those selling financial products in the alt space think about that balance of the brand name manager who may be fine but not generate the best returns versus in some cases emerging managers because they have smaller funds generating better returns.
1: I feel like people get the best of both worlds with us because we have 18 independent investment teams that are completely independent. So you get the benefit of a boutique manager with the scale and the fact that the risk management is both embedded in the investment process, but you can bet at the top of the house, we're looking at it too, because if one of our investment teams does something that is not consistent with what they've stated to the client they want to do, that is a reputational risk to the firm and to me personally. We're very focused on making sure that you have those investments and those safety. That for clients, there's a comfort in knowing Franklin Templeton is celebrating 75 years and they did it because they do focus on what's right with a client and evolve with a client. And yet they get that independence. You can pick from as many of our managers and they are completely independent. Even in our fixed income world, we had one team that really felt inflation was a bit more transitory and another team that felt the Fed was way behind the curve. We love the fact that we have teams that don't agree and we can bring those capabilities to clients depending on the client's views.
0: Interesting. That, that's fascinating as you think about the construction of this platform of independent specialist managers. On that point, are there other areas that you're looking to add that you can share? I know you're starting to think about the crypto space or have thought about the crypto space a lot. Are there other areas you want to add to the platform as you think about the evolution of asset management in the alt space?
1: Let me first say that I think in the crypto space that we're probably ahead most, we have a tokenized money market fund that was SEC approved. And we worked With the SEC, I have to tell you, they were incredibly engaged in the process. We launched that about 18 months ago, I think. We are node validators for, I think, five different platforms. We have a venture capital fund. We have launched Maze through a partner called Eagle Brook, where we can deliver to advisors researched, active research coin portfolios, as well as passive portfolios. So I feel really good with where we are in the digital asset space. If there's one thing that we feel we need to fill out, it would be infrastructure. When I think about the off-space, infrastructure has become a category on its own. We don't really have anything there. That would be an interesting one for us. And then the others would be ensuring we have a truly global platform. Lexington Partners and secondary PE is very global. Clarion Partners tends to be more mostly U.S., some European, not a lot of Asia. So from a global real estate perspective, if it's something made sense in Asia, that would be interesting. And again, on the private credit, we sort of have U.S. and Europe covered. It's not a lot of private credit in Asia, but I think that'll evolve over time too.
0: How do you split your time thinking about the more traditional alt strategies versus the Alt alt strategies, I call them. I've kind of bucketed alts into two categories, and both are important and both are massive. But I think about in the alt alt category crypto, and you spent a lot of time thinking about that. So, how do you balance thinking about these areas of massive trillions of dollars of AUM, like real estate, credit, infrastructure, and also thinking about the growing ones with significant potential for TAM exposure?
1: I guess I would describe it a little differently. I Have kind of put a stake in the ground to say, all right, how should I think about allocating my time? And by the way, if this doesn't make sense over time, I'll adjust it. But right now, I sort of view it as 40% of my time spent with clients and things like this, raising the profile of the firm, 30% of my time on day to day. And I would include an acquisition of a traditional or alts manager as part of the day-to-day job. The the reason is 30% of my time on the day-to-day is if I have the right management team, I don't think it should take that much more time. They're taking care of things. I only see the hard problems that maybe doesn't get handled by the management team or they want my view on things. And then 30% of my time on disruption. And I would put digital assets as one category of disruption that I think is really significant and important to focus on because I think it not only has potential in the product development area, I think is actually disruptive to traditional ways in which companies are launched and disruptive potentially to traditional equity markets. And so as an equity market investor, it's important that we understand how this is disruption. I don't think it's meaningful disruption in the next five years, but I think it's one that is, with the exception of efficiencies in back office, I think that we Savings that happen there. But I think it is going to be very, very disruptive.
0: Your face lights up when you talk about crypto, and you've been incredibly innovative in this space. We're now in a current market environment that's very challenging for crypto, but yet it's weathered multiple cycles. What makes you so excited about crypto?
1: Gartner is a company that kind of reviews technology companies, and they always have something called the Gartner hype curve. By the way, it doesn't just happen in technology. It kind of happens in everything. But the hype curve is, this is the greatest thing ever. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to change the world. Oh, it's terrible. It's the bottom. The dot-com blow up. This is it. I knew it. And all the naysayers get to say, I told you so. It's terrible. And then it comes up to where it naturally should be. And we're in the naysayer mode. And good news is, the naysayer mode cleans out a lot of noise. And you start to see the good, solid companies coming through. And I think we're going to have... A period of time here where we're still going to be in crypto winter. And that's fine. But you're still having back offices who are finding efficiencies by automating things that they do today. I think these new asset areas are going to get really interesting. What is crypto going to enable? Traditional copyright related assets or property right related assets. The fact that you can embed a title into a token means I can imagine that you have your home and you can sell off 10% of it, you're a retiree, you have cash solutions. Let me tokenize 10% of it because there'll be a company that'll allow me to do this. And then professional managers like Franklin Templeton will be able to provide clients with diversified exposure to residential real estate in a completely different way than it's been delivered today. I think of Web 2.0 to Web 3.0. Web 2.0 enabled us to monetize value in assets that we didn't even know could be unlocked. Your home, you could open it up for Airbnb. Your car, you could become an Uber driver on your off hours. Well, now, because you're reducing the frictional cost of transactions, you have companies like Helium, which apparently is a two-year waiting list where you can essentially monetize the excess capacity in your home router. You have companies like Tether TV where you can watch their content and they'll pay you to cash the streaming. They want to be the fastest streaming service, so they cash on your device some of their content. And then when the person near you wants to watch it, it jumps from your device to their device and they pay you in their token. And so you're now a client. You're kind of like an equity person, whereas the network expands, you get paid some value. And you're actually part of the infrastructure. They can hire less AWS cloud services because their clients are bringing that infrastructure. That's this Web 3.0. It's still early stage. These companies are clunky. They're awkward. But they will, over time, become really significant. And I think you're going to have the next Googles and Amazons that come out of this crypto winter. And then my only two other points. When you know the market is inefficient, when Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are two completely different, completely different business cases, trade up and down together. It shows today crypto is a risk-on, risk-off market. When you start to see differentiation in performance, then you'll start to see that this market is becoming much more mainstream.
0: It's a really interesting set of points that you make. Where I want to go with this is, what are the areas in a current environment that you think it makes sense to focus on in something like crypto? Because it is a down market, like you say, but those are great times to build.
1: For sure. Unfortunately, I think that there are going to be a lot of losers in this space. (laughs) So if you want to get exposure to it, I think the best thing is to get exposure through either I'm going to talk our own book here today, but I got to tell you, my research team, they came out of our traditional fixed income team. You read any write-up they have on Solana or Ethereum, or whatever, it's as thorough as any equity or fixed income write-up we have. We leverage this company Eaglebrook, to deliver these portfolios or either passive where it's equal weight or market cap weighted. I I think Ethereum and blockchain are are capped at 50% or something. Or you go into our active strategies, which can be things like the platforms. It's important to have somebody who understands this space, because even with all the time that I'm in it, I feel like I don't understand it. And the fact, which I think very few people understand, that there isn't necessarily a limit to the number of coins with the exception of Bitcoin does have a limit, that you might think, let's say you're staking, you're a node validator, you might think you're getting X percentage of return, but in the meantime, you're generating more coins, there's more inflation there, then you don't know what your real return is. And so this is where I just think accessing this space through some professional, it's where active management is going to matter a lot. But on the other hand, there's great opportunities here too.
0: That's a really interesting point, the concept of active management in crypto. And yet- On the other side, investors are now able to have exposure in a more passive way through through structured products, not quite ETFs, but indices, index products in the crypto space. How do you think investors should balance their exposure between active management and maybe investing in more of the frontier, like like the crypto venture funds, which may be liquid, but also semi-liquid tokens or companies, as well as the more liquid space of just investing in more passive products like bitcoin or ethereum or some sort of index of these larger coins and or nfts
1: as i said it before there are more losers than winners in this space right now it is not the place to just throw money if you go into a passive index you've at least gone through the process of validating that the company should be public and has reporting public financials the exchanges you go through some amount of due diligence before exchange is gonna list you. It's where real active research is gonna be very important in this space because historically, the best technology doesn't always win. You're too young to remember the VHS and beta, but when we're doing research, we're looking at the technology, we're looking at the management team, we're looking at their distribution capabilities, we're looking at the market space, we're looking at who are the disruptors. All of those factors have to be weighed when you're evaluating these things. And I think this space, more than anything, requires it.
0: What this brings me to is you're saying there's so much potential, yet it's so early, which when you think back, you've lived through the the internet bubble. You've lived through the financial crisis of 2009. What advice would you give to people in the alt space, having seen these various cycles in terms of how to think about this?
1: When you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. That's Rudyard Kipling's a line from his "If." These are really hard times for investment people because oftentimes, especially in the Wealth Channel, there's a lack of understanding of what's going on. It's going to be a difficult time here. The consumer's still been strong. The markets have come down. Companies haven't changed their earnings. I think we still got a bumpy road ahead of us. This is where looking for good, solid companies, sticking to good underwriting, but also not being afraid to deploy capital because in these markets, this is some of the best opportunity to deploy capital but deploy it smartly. So I say, keep your head, keep focused, and continue to do what you have done to get yourself here and be successful.
0: On the topic of deploying capital smartly, it's a question I always ask every guest as the last question on the podcast, and it's, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment?
1: Oh my gosh. Right now, I've just become passionate about secondary PE because I, this is unfair. It's a little bit like I have a bunch of children and I'm telling you now a favorite child, so that's totally unfair. But I can tell you why it's the time for private credit. I can tell you why it's the time for private real estate. In the case of secondary PE, I think that people, there's a, a lack of understanding. There's been $6 trillion deployed in private equity There's been 110 billion about deployed in secondary PE with about another 140 billion raised. And what happens in times of this kind of market dislocation is you're sitting there. You're an institution. You have an investment mandate. Your alts in your private assets aren't allowed to exceed X. Maybe it's. 20, 25%, and you've got some range in there. Meanwhile, your public equity and your public fixed income has dropped dramatically. You needed to come up with liquidity. You pulled it from your public category. Suddenly you're breaching that covenant. Those institutions will call up the Lexington partners and say, I need you to take a billion dollars off of my balance sheet in 30 days. So Lexington keeps very tight relationships with the private equity firms. They're important partners to them. They'll go in and they'll say, I'd like to take this vintage of this one. And they pick and choose which managers and which vintage. And they're able to reset the price based on today's interest rate in today's environment. They'll buy these assets at a discount. And so there's no J-curve. You get a distributed portfolio and you get it kind of reset at today's current environment. I have to say, I think it's a pretty fascinating area.
0: That absolutely is. And I think every market cycle has its really interesting strategies that come with it. And secondaries, I think for a number of good reasons, like you say, should really be on people's radar. But that's one of the many things that you do at Franklin and an incredibly impressive business career Firm evolution and all that you're doing in Alts. So this was a fascinating conversation. Looking forward to seeing what you continue to do in the alt space. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom, Jenny. Hey,
1: thank you for having me. It was a lot of
0: fun. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my substack, stack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-